1 Samuel 24 and verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went into the cave to attend to his needs. Now David and his men were staying in the recesses of that cave. Then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand and you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm. Look. This day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in that cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and that I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. 
And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, and David and his men went back to the stronghold. The title of the message tonight is, This is the Way. Now, I say that because if you're a Star Wars fan, especially by the graphic this evening, you know that catchphrases are very important to the Star Wars universe. Lines like, may the force be with you, or I have a very bad feeling about this, are lines that are repeated over and over again throughout the episodes. In recent years, through the popularity of the uh, Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, a new phrase in Star Wars fandom has emerged. It's a phrase, a code that those who choose to walk the way of the Mandalore use it to remind one another the right path to take, especially when someone in the brotherhood is tempted to go another path or another route. It's also used as a simple expression to explain to those who are not Mandalorians why it is that the Mandalorians do the things that they do. It's the simple mantra, this is the way, this is the way. It also happens to be the title of our message tonight. And maybe my mind just works in a weird way, but that is the phrase that I, all I could think about as I study this text. I'm reading David's reactions to Saul and what he could have done but didn't do. And we back off and we look at it. Why in the world did he choose this path? Why did he go this route? And what would prompt him to respond in this way? And all I could think about is this is the way. This is the way. You see, the path that David chooses to take in this cave while coming face to face with the man who has spared no expense at trying to take David's life. But the path that David chose to take, it was a path of mercy, a path of patience, a path of submission to God. And it's not only the path that David chose to take, we understand through the Holy Scriptures that it is the path of God's people. And when we look at what David did here, we can't help but say, this is the way. This is the way. The way of God's people, it is a way of mercy. It is a way of patience. It is a way of submission to God. You see, David's journey to the throne has been a long and difficult journey. And the question is, if it's God's will for David to be Israel's king, then why doesn't God just arrange things for it to happen quickly and painlessly? Why do we have here in 1 Samuel this long, drawn-out struggle between 
David and Saul? Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and move Saul out of the picture and put his man on the throne as he desires for it to be? It's the same question that many of us may wonder from time to time in our own Christian experience. If God's ultimate purpose for his creation is a new heaven and a new earth and a, and a new kingdom where there will be no more sorrow and no more suffering and no more pain, then why is the journey you and I are on to that kingdom so long and difficult? Why are there so many tears along the way? Remember, even Jesus himself was tempted in the wilderness by Satan to take the quick and easy path. The path that would not involve pain. The path that would not involve crucifixion. And of course, as we know, Jesus rejected that temptation. And he chose willingly to take the long and difficult journey to the cross. Why? Because this is the way. This is the way that God has chosen. David here has the opportunity to take matters into his own hands but by eliminating his enemy and immediately marching his way out of En Gedi to the throne of Israel. But to summarize this entire chapter of 1 Samuel 24, David refuses to do that. More, more specifically, David refuses to take that which was only God's to give. It's an important thing that we need to note, not only about this story, but in our everyday Christian lives. That David refused to take that which was only God's to give. Because this is the way. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of God's people. Instead of taking matters into our own hands, we by faith leave it to God. And we leave it to God to settle righteously. There are three things I want you to notice about this way that David took, this way of God's people that can help us as we consider our everyday moments in the darkness of the cave when we are tempted to cut corners, to take matters into our own hands instead of leaving it to God to do as he has willed in his timing. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. It's the word restraint. Restraint. We find it in verses 1 through 7, and we begin with verse 1, and we find out here that Saul, after defeating the Philistines, and we know other, no other information about that other than at the end of chapter 23, uh, Saul is diverted from David because the Philistines are encroaching upon uh, his territory, and he immediately leaves David right where he had him. I mean, it was the moment Saul had been waiting for, and God intervenes with the Philistines invading the town. Uh, Saul leaves to take care of the Philistines, and whatever happened with that episode... He, he takes care of the Philistines. 
Which is a good thing to note because that was what Saul was supposed to be doing throughout his whole kingdom. And this is really the first time that we see him doing what he's supposed to be doing. He he defeats the Philistines and in the process he receives word which means he had his minions perhaps following David, tracing his every move. He received words that David and his men were now hiding out in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, those of you who have journeyed with us to Israel, your minds, I know, are immediately going to that little canyon in which we hiked up that glorious day through En Gedi. I've got a couple of pictures here I just want you to be able to see when we talk about En uh, Gedi. It is a wilderness no doubt, but it's more of a canyon. And right down there to the base of it, this picture was taken from the top of the canyon, looking down the canyon. You'll see the Dead Sea. It's just to the west of the Dead Sea, this, this narrow canyon. And, and all along the sides of this canyon, which is the next picture, you, you see caves everywhere. You see about four of them in that particular picture there, caves where uh, goats and sheep folds would, would rest, and it's, it's right here in this cave that we find David and his men hiding in the canyon of, of En Gedi, and it would appear, according to verse 1 and 2, that Saul, once again, has the advantage over David. For example, look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that Saul has 3,000 men with him as he goes to this dead-end canyon. And the last that was noted about David and his men, back in chapter 23 and verse 13, David only has about 600 men. So it seems here that Saul has a 5-to-1 numerical advantage over David and his men. They're hiding in one of these caves, Saul has received intel that they are somewhere in this canyon, somewhere in this wilderness where all the goats hang out, and he has taken his 3,000 men in order to find him. Now, when we come to verse number 3, the narrative gets very detailed. David and his men are hiding in the dark caves of En Gedi when Saul and his men arrived to this region. Look at verse number three. So he, that is Saul, came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. Now all Saul and his men knew was that David was in the region of En Gedi. There is no intel recorded here in Scripture about David being inside any cave. He just knows that they're there in En Gedi. And as he arrives, he just so happens to walk into this particular cave. And it's innocent in nature. In fact, what we have here is nothing more than an innocent pit stop. And by pit stop, I mean pit stop. Because that phrase, Saul went in to attend to his needs, is what we call going to the bathroom. Verse 3, in our understanding of this, would more clearly be read that Saul went into the cave to go to the bathroom. This is how detailed the writer gets, and it's important 
Because the reason the details of this bathroom break by King Saul are noted is because it just so happens that this is the exact cave that David and his men were hiding in. You know, big deal, you just showed us four, but you don't understand that that's just four of many caves in the canyon of Engedi. And verse 3 tells us that David and his men were staying, they were hiding in the recesses, the very back, darkest part of the cave. Think about this. Of all the caves to walk into alone, vulnerable, and undressed, is the cave that David is in. Picture this scene. Maybe you shouldn't, but go with me there anyway. Uh, A 3,000-man army is on the outside of the cave. They're not following King Saul. He's going to do his private business. He goes by himself. So 3,000-man army is on the outside of the cave. A a 600-man army is deep in the darknesses of darkness of the inside. And between the two armies is the sitting king of Israel. And I mean no pun intended there. But it's the sitting king of Israel going to the bathroom. So as this is unfolding, verse 4 says that the men of David who recognized this, how did they recognize it? Well, I'll just leave that to your imagination to figure out. But they recognized it. And verse 4 says that the men of David said to him, and you got to imagine, they're whispering in this. They're, they're whispering this. They, they don't want to reveal that there's 600 of them hiding in this cave. And by the way, we've been there. These caves are huge. This is where shepherds would take their sheep and goats, and that's where they would rest and sleep, and they're, they're big enough for hundreds, hundreds of sheep to, to sheep to gather in. And so here we have no accident that there's 600 men here hiding in the deep recesses of the cave, and while they're there, the men begin to whisper in a way that, that they're not recognized, seen, or heard, and they say to David in verse 4, look at it there, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. So David's men interpreted this situation as God delivering David's enemy into his very hand. I picture them whispering this counsel to David. David, this is it. God said he was going to deliver Your enemy in your hand, this is it. This is the moment. This is where God has brought us to. Go and take the kingdom. Here's the thing about any kind of counsel, and I'll just mention this as a side note and move on. Just because there's a lot of people telling you to do the same thing doesn't always make it the right thing to do. It doesn't make it the wrong thing to do. But what we have here is an example of a lot of people telling David what they perceive to be the will of God when we find out subsequently that that was not God's plan. It was not the right thing to do. 
I leave that to you to figure out in your own scenarios of life, but it's important that we understand the will of God through His Word, the filling of the Holy Spirit and prayer, and yes, even through counsel. But whatever was going through David's mind, here's his first reaction. Verse number four, look at it. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, I'll read this, and I'm, my first thought is, how in the world? Because all we see here is that Saul is going to the bathroom. And the next moment, we find David in stealth mode, secretly cutting off the corner of his robe. How is that even possible? Now, here's what I think. I think at some point Saul disrobed himself in order to go to the bathroom. It makes absolute sense to me that perhaps he wasn't wearing his robe at this very moment. I think his robe, although near him, was just far enough away in the darkness for David to do this without being detected. Again, verse 4 says that when David went to do this, he did this secretly, secretly in a cave with six hundred other soldiers breathing in the background. And so somehow this was done in such a way that perhaps he disrobes himself, he sets it on maybe a rocker, hangs it on the side, and then he goes a little bit further to take care of his business, and David gets into Tom Cruise Mission Impossible mode. And he goes over to where the robe has been laid. Again, we don't know what was going through David's mind as he did this. Maybe on his way to Saul, he was considering taking the counsel of his men and grabbing his sword and going right for the neck of Saul. Maybe in the process, he changes his mind and says, instead of going towards Saul, I'm going to go over here to where his robe is. We, we, we don't know what's going through his mind, but what we do know is that immediately, verse 5 says, after he cuts the corner of the road, David's heart began to trouble him. Immediately. Immediately. He cuts the corner of the robe, and immediately his heart fails him inside. This is what we call conscience. Conscience. He does something and immediately his conscience tells him that wasn't the right thing to do. This is not the way. You see, unlike Saul's seared conscience, David's conscience is completely sensitive to the Lord. How do we know? Because immediately upon making a wrong move, he, he, he feels bad about this. His, his heart fails something inside of him. The Spirit of God is telling him that this is the wrong thing, David. Exactly what was it about cutting the corner of Saul's robe that affected Dave's conscience so much? It wasn't as if he was cutting off Saul. He was cutting off the robe. What's the big deal? Well, a lot in the story of 1 Samuel is said about the robes. We've learned about Samuel's robe that his mother made him. And we'll come to that quickly. We're reminded that Samuel tore his robe as a symbol that Saul's kingdom was being torn from him. You see... The robe was a symbol. 
It was a symbol of royal authority. Now, yes, David is the promised king of Israel, but in God's providence, he has yet to give David that throne that he has promised. It's not his yet. And it was God's job to take care of Saul. It was not David's job to take care of Saul. So in this moment, David realized that by cutting the corner of the robe, that in a symbolic way, he was taking something upon himself that God never gave him to do. David realized this wasn't right. His conscience, his conscience, listen to me, his conscience would not allow him to peacefully do anything against the appointed authority that was given to Saul by God. In other words, he refuses to take matters into his own hands. The kingdom would be his one day. But it was not his to take by his own power. It was to be given to him at the time God chooses to do so. You ever tempted to cut corners? To take matters into your own hands? Instead of waiting for God to do what he has promised to do? The next thing you know it, in verses 6 and 7, we find David crawling back to his men in the darkness of this cave. And when he gets there, he tells them that neither he nor they could touch God's anointed king. He restrained himself, and then in valiant leadership, he restrains his men. And this is where we get back to the word restraint. Restraint. This is the way. Restraint. This is the way of David. This is the way of God's people. That is, when you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, He restrains us from cutting corners. He restrains us from acting out against God's appointed authority. He restrains us from taking matters into our own hands. And as the Holy Spirit restrains us, He gives us in replacement gentleness, long-suffering meekness. Church, I'm here to remind us tonight that the way of God's people is the way of restraint. Leave it to God. Stop taking matters into your own hands. Restraint. The second thing that we see here is grace. Grace, and that picks up at verse number 8. And I'll tell you, the drama is really just getting started. Because as Saul gets up from taking care of his business, David chooses to follow out after him. Now picture this. 
Saul is walking out of the cave. David decides to get up and follow him. And as he follows him, he speaks through the darkness. The scripture implies here that when Saul turns around, he doesn't notice that it's David. He's only listening to his voice. So, so Saul is just far enough out. David is still far enough back. He's, he's following him, but when he speaks, Saul cannot see him. And here's what he says. He says, my Lord, the king. Saul turns around. And as Saul turns around, immediately, out of respect, David falls to the ground and bows his face to King Saul. So in this amazing turn of events, we see that the roles of vulnerability are now reversed by the will of David. Just a few moments ago, it was Saul who was vulnerable, undressed, attending to his personal matters. David right there with his sword and his robe. He's in the most vulnerable position King Saul has been in up to this point. And now, by the graciousness of David and his willingness to take the right path of conscience, he now makes himself vulnerable. He cries out to King Saul. And then, with his face on the ground, he's not even watching to see how Saul is going to respond. I look at this and I think to myself that David's faith and trust in God's promises is as strong as ever. I mean, this is the same guy who was hiding out in the city of Nob, being a little deceptive out of fear for his life. And now his faith in God's promise that he was going to be the king of Israel could not be shaken. He is willing to make himself vulnerable for the sake of the promise that God had given him. He bows his face to the ground. And as he's bowing his face to the ground, notice what he says. Look at verse number 9. And David said to Saul, Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say David seeks to harm you? Look this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you into my hands in this very cave, and everyone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. He pleads with him, moreover, Father, remember this is his father-in-law, moreover, Father, look, see, Holding here in my hand is the corner of your robe. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. And I have not sinned against you. I could have done this today, Saul. I could have finished this. I could have ruined this. But I am not going to touch God's anointed, God's appointed authority. I refuse to do it. Look in my hand. This is proof, Saul. You're telling everybody that I'm out to get you. I'm not out to get you. I spared your life, Saul. Yet you haunt my life. So David says in verse 12, let the Lord judge us. Let the Lord avenge me on you. But I just want you to know, Saul, my hand is not going to rise up against you. Once again, David emphasizes that it's the Lord 
He desires to settle this matter. He's not going to take matters in his own hands. He wants the Lord to settle it while his commitment remains to leave it to God. This is how the speech continues all the way down through verse 15 and verse 14. He looks at Saul and he says, why are you chasing me? You're hunting me. By the way, hunting me is like hunting a dead dog. Hunting me is like trying to find fleas. Why are you doing this? I'm not out against you. I'm not out to destroy your kingdom. I've always been faithful to you. Why why are you doing something so vain and empty? But something interesting happens in verse 16. Look at it. Verse 16 says, So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice? My son David. Now isn't that interesting? Because if you've been following this, Saul thinks so highly of him and so evil against his enemies that he never refers to them as his first name. Whenever he referred to David, it was always the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse. The son of Jesse. Something's happening. He doesn't call him the son of Jesse. No, he says, my son Is that your voice, my son, David? And immediately Saul lifted up his voice and wept. As he's weeping, verse 17, he says to David, you're more righteous than I. For you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. When the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. This is incredible, Saul says, because when a man finds his enemy, he doesn't let him get away safely, but you did. Therefore, let the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. It appears as if Saul is breaking down. That hardness, that stony heart begins to, at least for this brief particular moment, begins to melt. He's breaking down in tears. His heart is softening to the point, at least in this particular situation, he's choosing not to kill David. Now, some of us who are a little bit more hard-hearted toward enemies and adversaries need to listen very, very carefully. Saul, in the balance of this moment, became broken. Not by the sword of David, but by the grace and kindness of David. Saul became broken. Broken. His heart had softened. His conscience, at least temporarily, is melting, not because David threatened him with the sword, but because David treated him with kindness and grace. Isn't this what God has called us to do? Yeah, I know what it's like to be lied about, to be misrepresented. I have to log on to Facebook every day to see the trash that's said and your character and name dragged to the carpet for nothing you didn't even do. But 
what is our response in those moments? Grab the sword and return evil for evil? Or even at the hardest moments of your life when you want to set the record straight and they continue to demean you and demean you and demean you. What's the path? The path is grace. This is the way. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Yes, those who you try to speak with in the corner of the hall and they brush you off like you're just a nobody. Yes, those who verbally assault you. Yes, those who threaten you. Bless them. Pray for them. Do good to them. Paul said, be Kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, not hard-hearted. Be tender-hearted. And when they offend you, you forgive them because Christ has forgiven you. To the church at Rome, the Holy Spirit says, Repay no evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. Yes. Yes. Not if your enemy is hungry, let him starve. No. If your enemy is hungry, take him a meal. If he is thirsty, buy him a drink. If he's in need, do what you can to provide for him. If he goes down throwing punches at you, then you rise up and speak good of him anyway. Do not be overcome by evil, he says. Be overcome evil with good. Grace. This is the way. This is the way. The way of God's people, restraint, grace. And let me give you this third word and we'll finish. Patience. Patience. That brings us to verse 20. And when we get to this point, we see that Saul acknowledges to David that he knows, that he knows God has chosen him to be king. So he asks David to spare his descendants and to not cut off his name from his father's house. I read that to seem to think that, that, that Saul seems to be consumed by how he's going to be remembered. And of course, in kindness, David makes the vow. But this third point, this, this, this word patience, is highlighted by the very last sentence of the chapter in verse 22. I want you to see how this all unfolds, and here's where we're going to close. Look at it there, verse 22. And Saul went home. After all this drama, this tension, this climactic moment of Saul's heart breaking, David refusing to re act out in vengeance, you would think that the long road would end here, right? 
I mean, this is great. Everybody's on the same page. Saul, it's time to hand over the robe, give the crown. This is God's anointed in David. Let him go back to the palace. But no. Even after all we see in the caves of Engedi, Saul goes back to the throne. And David goes with him. Is that right? No. David doesn't go back with him. Look at the end of the verse. David went back into the cave. It's a reminder of what we've acknowledged already at the outset of our study this evening. Saul goes back to the throne. David goes back to the cave. His kingdom, that is David's, it was not established quickly. And it was not established painlessly. His path to the throne was long and difficult. But look at how he's choosing to go about it. He's choosing not to anymore cut corners or to take matters in his own hands. He's restraining himself. He's restraining those who follow him. He's restraining his men. He's giving grace as grace had been given to him. And to bring it all to the truest moment of godly character, he is patiently prepared to wait for God's time. And he is patiently prepared to rest in God's providence. Patience. This is the way. Patience. It's the way of God's people. Restraint, grace, patience, all of this in David. Does it remind you of someone else? 1 Peter 2. Peter says to believers, this is what you've been called to. And you've been called to this because Jesus did this. So follow his example. Jesus is the fulfillment of restraint, grace, and patience. 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He left it to God. He committed it all to God who judges righteously. Patience. Grace. Restraint. Are you walking the way of Jesus tonight? Are you walking the way of God's people? Don't cut corners. Don't take matters into your own hands. Show restraint, grace, patience as you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, whatever it is in the cave with you right now that you're so close to, the robe is in your hand. Whatever it is, Leave it to God. This is the way. 
Let's stand together.